everyone! Welcome to Pale Blue Pod, the astronomy podcast for people who are overwhelmed by the universe but want to be its friend. Aww, I want to be its friend. Hi, I'm uh-huh. Dr. Moya McTeer. I'm kind of friends with the universe because I'm an astrophysicist who's studied it for a long time. And I'm Kring Caputo. I am friends with the universe, I think, even though sometimes it can be scary and overwhelming. I'm a comedian and a writer and ready to learn. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Moya, where are we recording from today? Oh, I'm so excited about today's location. We are in a glass greenhouse surrounded by plants and all of them have been grown with love. And yeah, it's pretty warm and humid in here, but the smell is absolutely divine. It's earthy with lots of green and a truly intoxicating mix of floral scents. Get that jasmine. I love that. Get that lily of the valley like oh oh, so gorgeous and i am really happy to be basking in their presence especially as we head into the winter season yes oh gosh especially in the cold it can be really hard to power through the dark ages Mm -hmm. which is what i call the winter (laughs) it's what everyone should call the winter because you know i i take my daily nature walks through central park but all of those trees look so naked Uh uh-huh they really do Mm -hmm. and i just i like being around the leaves It's just nice, you know, (laughs) to be reminded of life. Yeah, every once in a while. Speaking of life, speaking of people's lives, people who have lived lives, uh, today is a very fun episode because this is the first of our scientist bio episodes. Um, Because I think it's easier to understand space if you know more about the people who study it. You know, like you understand Mm -hmm. all that context, you see where we're coming from, and uh, really what I hope you learn by hearing about the people who study space is that the study of space is not perfect. It's done by humans who are imperfect. Yes. So I want you to remember that. Um, But today we are covering Vera Rubin, Dr. Vera Rubin, the woman who proved the existence of dark matter back in the 1970s. Um, She died in 2016, but we are here to honor her memory. Yeah, I love it. I um, I did a little bit of research about her before this episode, and she's just so cool. So cool. Um, I never met her in person, but I've only heard good things. Yeah. Isn't that nice when you yeah. hear all the good things about someone? Yeah. And the astronomy community, we are a bunch of <laughs> gossiping bitches. <laughs> like we, <laughs> we spill so much tea. So yeah, I would have heard bad things. I w- have to say, I never would have guessed that. I really wouldn't have. I don't know why I separate um, science from like the frivolity of gossip, but it, it we're all human. Of course, exactly. we all love it. This is what I mean. People think of scientists as like robots who don't have feelings and they just analyze the data. But nah, man, we're real people. Yes. And we do weird shit that needs to get gossiped about, just like everybody else. <laughs> This um this reminded me of what at one point was my favorite video on YouTube, and it was um a dramatic reading of a breakup letter, and one of the lines was, "If you're a weird shit who does weird shit during the day," and I'm like, "Yes, I am. Yes, yes. <laughs> I identify with that. And scientists are like they are weird shits who do weird shit. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so we're we're gonna be talking about Vera Rubin and and the weird shit she did. Um. Just briefly, I think, since so much of her story is about the big finding that she made, the the discovery of dark matter, um, I wonder if maybe we should start off with a the very brief description or yes. explanation of dark matter. Yes, I would love to know. Yeah, I, I'm curious, Corinne, do you have, if I say dark matter, do you have any thoughts that come to mind? We talked about it briefly in an earlier episode, but 
I imagine it as this like invisible thing that is apparently everywhere in space and we're not fully sure or rather we can't see it. Like light does not pass through it or bounce off of it Mm -hmm. in the way that the other things we see with our eyes do. So it's a bit of a mystery, but it's also everywhere. And to me, it's so interesting because it sounds so spooky and I got to know more. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, Dark matter is matter. It's material. It has weight. It has gravity. But for some reason that we don't totally understand yet, it doesn't interact with light. So we can't see it. Um, And I think I said this in in the Galaxies episode where we were talking about it. But there's this scientist named Dr. Chanda Prescott-Leinstein, who I really admire. And she's been calling for people to change uh, the name of dark matter to like transparent matter because mm-hmm. dark sounds very scary although it shouldn't i'm i'm kind of dark i'm beautiful i love yeah. it but transparent matter i think will alleviate people from the expectation that it it is this like actively black thing yes transparent matter just feels like a better explanation for what it is mm-hmm. immediately it kind of clicked in my head way better than it did with dark matter. Oh, good. Good. Um, (laughs) So what we do know about dark matter is that it seems to be everywhere. Like you said, most galaxies that we see, like almost every galaxy that we see has a large cloud of dark matter surrounding it. But we we had to learn that. And we didn't really understand that until the 1970s, thanks to Dr. Rubin's work. Um, There are ideas for what it could be what like types of particles could make up dark matter, but we still don't have the evidence to make a claim about one of them over the other. This is an active area of research, which I think is very exciting and also a little bit scary. Yeah, yeah it definitely is. But I'm really hoping I get some kind of fun answer in my lifetime. And I feel like we will. Me too. Yeah. There are actively trying to figure this out. I think it's it's something that kind of embarrasses a lot of astronomers because dark matter makes up 85% of all of the matter in the universe. It makes up Oh my god. It makes up like 20% of all of the matter energy content of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um and we don't know what it is. That's pretty embarrassing. So yeah, we're we're working on it. Oh my god, 85% is so big. So big. It's so big. Like if you think of it in terms of Venn diagrams, there's there's all of yeah. the the energy matter content and most of that is dark energy. Like 75% of that is dark energy and then 25% is matter and mm-hmm. most of the matter is dark matter. That's wild. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So that's that's dark matter. Um we will meet it later as Vera Rubin meets it. Uh, but this is not an episode about dark matter. This is an episode about Vera Rubin. So uh-huh. let's let's learn about her. Yeah, let's do it. I have a little bit about her early life, Ooh. which I would love to catch you up on. Please this is before do. she became who she, you know, became famous mm-hmm. for. This is the origin of the legend. Yes, exactly. This is the origin story of the superhero Vera Rubin. <laughs> she's bit by a spider. and <laughs> She's bit by a, she's a dark, bit matter by dark matter spider. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And is given the gift of vision and you can see it. Um, no, she her, she was born Vera Cooper. She was born July 23rd, 1928. So she is a Leo, Ooh. which I think makes sense. She's right on the cusp of Leo. I have no idea what that means. But why why does that make sense? So I think, so Leo kind of is, I'm a Leo. And <laughs> I'm going to claim her as my own. Oh, good. kind of what I'm saying. Um, it's kind of your... 
you're like uh, not attention grabby, but like you're kind of maybe the center of your world. Oh. And I love that she was able to kind of figure out the world or not Earth world, but the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, she's born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a Woo-hoo. place that still exists today. <laughs> Not every place can say that. Not every place can say that. Um, And she has one older sister. Um, Her parents were Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. Mm. And her dad, his name, he was born Pesach Kopchevsky in Lithuania. But he anglicized his name when they moved. And he changed his name to Philip Cooper. That's a very different name. I know. It's a very different name. And it's like, um, it sounds like a fictional name. (laughs) Like, completely made up for some, whatever sitcom (laughs) is airing in the 50s. Hi, I'm Um, Philip Cooper. I have a totally normal job, and I have a perfectly nuclear family. A totally (laughs) anonymous name. But he anglicized his name to Philip Cooper. He became an electrical engineer at Bell Telephone. Mm. And he married Rose Applebaum um, from Bessarabia, which is now Moldova. Or Moldova. Moldova. That's that's me trying (laughs) to Princess princess Diariesify something. Yeah. Moldova, by the way, excellent Eurovision entries for the last few years. Ooh, I okay. This is a gap of knowledge I have about Eurovision. I I don't follow it, but I really should because so many people I love do, and it seems fun. It's so fun. Um, but they um, Vera's parents met at Bell Telephone, where Rose worked until she got married. As a like secretary, I don't know what she worked as, but I gotta think it was a secretary. Yeah. But maybe that's me being. I'm not being sexist. The time period was. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure what she did there. But she did stop working when they got married and had kids. So hopefully it was a job she didn't like. The Cooper family moved to Washington, D.C. in 1938 when Vera was 10. And she got really interested in astronomy. So she's watching the stars from her bedroom window, which is just the cutest. And she has a quote that says, Even then, I was more interested in the question than the answer. I decided at an early age we inhabit a very curious world. So cute. Um, So she built a very simple, like, DIY telescope out of cardboard with her dad and began to observe and track meteors. Oh, just so cute. Um, And she was inspired to pursue an undergraduate ed at Vassar, which is then an all-women's school. And she was inspired by Maria Mitchell, who's a famous female astronomer. Love her, too. So Maria Mitchell discovered a comet and became, separately, the first internationally known woman to work as both a professional astronomer and a professor of astronomy at Vassar, where Vera went. Vera was advised by a high school teacher to avoid a scientific career entirely and become an artist, which is what it said on her Wikipedia page. But she did not take that advice. And I am desperate to know what kind of artist that they wanted her to be. I could not find any info about it. Oh, my God. Also, just imagine, like, today... Your high school teacher. I know. It was so backwards where they're like, mm, you should definitely do art and not science. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a more successful career as an artist. That's so <laughs> crazy. Don't go into STEM. There's nothing for you there. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing for you in STEM. It's going to oh. be a hard life in STEM for you. I mean, it was. Um, but that takes us to her graduate career. Okay. Yes, I, I did some some looking into of this. That's how English yeah. works. Uh, <laughs> so after Vassar, Vera tried to study at Princeton. She applied to Harvard for their graduate programs in astronomy, but she actually was not allowed to enroll because the Princeton astronomy graduate program didn't admit women until 1975. And this was like Whoa. 1948. 
Oh my God. I know. She I, has a long time to wait. Yeah. Yeah. She she would have been waiting decades. Like she she yeah. would not have gotten into Princeton. Of course, not based on merit, based solely on other people's uh, faulty assumptions of her gender uh-huh. or like assumptions of the skills that she could have right. given her gender. Right. Right. Yes. Um, so instead of going to those schools, which I imagine like were probably some of her dream schools because they yeah. were my dream schools. Yeah. Um, she went to Cornell, also fantastic school, uh, mm-hmm. but they offered a master's program in astronomy and let women in. So she went there. Imagine uh, that. <laughs> imagine that. Yeah. Her her husband, who she married um, just a, a little bit before she entered the program, was a math grad student at Cornell at the time. So she had that connection. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. Her advisors were Philip Morrison, Richard Feynman, who was brilliant but an asshole, and Hans <laughs> uh, Betha? Beefy? Betha. Beefy. Beefy. Hans Beefy. <laughs> the name pronunciation on this show is always going to be a struggle. If you yeah, are a listener who cares about that, just like stop now. <laughs> or you know what? Feel free to let me know later. <laughs> she was studying the motions of galaxies. So like t- take a galaxy and look at how they move through space. Um, mm-hmm. Because this was the 1950s. We didn't know much about how stuff in space moved back then. Uh, This was only 30 years after we realized that there were other galaxies to begin with. You know, at first we thought that like the Milky Way was all there was. And then it's uh, 20 years after Edwin Hubble observed that distant galaxies are moving farther away from us. Um, At the very end of the 1920s, Edwin Hubble realized that the universe is expanding, galaxies are moving away. So they came up with this idea of the motion of galaxies in the universe called the Hubble flow. Um, And it was the idea that, well, clearly we see these galaxies moving away from something. So Hubble Flow said that they were moving away from the central point after the Big Bang. Cool. Vera Rubin, in her master's degree work, took observations of 108 different galaxies and showed that the Hubble Flow hypothesis is wrong, that all of these galaxies aren't just moving outward from some central point, uh, but that they are moving in what she thought were orbits around some central point. So they're not like moving in a straight line away from something. Instead, they're orbiting something central. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that was wrong. Yeah, that was wrong. Um, But it was the 1950s. Um, Either way, people did not treat her work with the respect that it deserved um, because Mm -hmm. it did match all of the observations that were available at that time. Um, But they just didn't want to listen to her because she was a woman. And so she she actually almost wasn't allowed to present her findings at the American Astronomical Society meeting because she was a woman who had the audacity to be pregnant. No. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She did. She did go and present her findings. Um, People were kind of crappy to her. And then I don't think that paper ended up getting published. People wouldn't wouldn't publish her findings. So that sucks. She couldn't talk just because she was pregnant. Yeah. Like her advisor was like, "Um, you know, you're going to be pregnant and you're not a member of the AAS. So uh, I can go and present your work for you, but I'll have to put my name on it. And she was like, no, no, no. No way, Jose. I can do that. Get out of here. Yeah. So she went and she presented (gasps) and then people were dicks. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
very unfortunate. You'll that continues. You'll see that as a trend in Vera uh. Rubin's life. She graduated from Cornell in 1951. She did her research. She got her master's degree, and then she went on to continue her doctoral work at Georgetown University, going back to D.C., where she used to live. Um, her graduate advisor at Georgetown was uh, George Gamov, a Russian scientist, and together they were studying the spatial distribution of galaxies. She wanted to steer away from any of the controversial subjects that she used to research, like the motion of galaxies, and instead mm-hmm. was just like, no, let me figure out where the galaxies physically are. Like, how are they distributed throughout space? That was really awesome work. She had a groundbreaking discovery, which was that galaxies are not just randomly scattered around the universe. Instead, they tend to cluster together. And now we talk about galaxy clusters and galaxy superclusters. We know that gravity will gather these these galaxies um, into larger groups. But people ignored her findings for decades. Oh, no. She learned that galaxies cluster together. And then it, it... took like another 20 years for people independently to make that discovery again with different, newer, better data. And people paid attention to that, but did not pay attention to her. Uh, I hate this. I know. It really sucks. Um, so she she did that research. I'm really glad she did. Uh, she graduated with her PhD in 1954 from Georgetown and then stayed uh, in that area for about another decade. She did some teaching at a local junior college. She did some research at Georgetown and eventually did become an assistant professor at Georgetown, which is awesome. But after 10 years, she was like, I want to do more observations. I want to use telescopes. I really love, like, directly observing the night sky. So she left Georgetown and in 1965 started working at the Carnegie Institute of Washington, which is now the Carnegie Science Institute in D.C. Cool. Well, we know she loves to look at the sky because she made all those DIY telescopes as a kid with her dad. I absolutely love that part of her story. Like, it melted my heart a little bit. Makes her so, like, adorable and approachable. She's so relatable. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's like we were all kids who had that one obsession. And if we were all kind of fostered or, like, had the kind of drive to pursue it as we got older, Mm -hmm. I would be a veterinarian. (laughs) I would be a professional bed tester. Oh my god, that's brilliant! That's what I want. I would be. not be a yeah. vet. I was obsessed with being a investigative journalist, but like Ooh. in concept only, not in practice. Like the the thought of like devoting my life to a story and like hunting it down and interviewing people and like talking to strangers is so far away from who I am as a person. <laughs> but as a kid, it was like, oh wait, that job seems like it has a lot of glory. Mm. <laughs> that's what we're after. Oh, what a different time when uh, news, like media and journalism actually was like it had integrity. Actually, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And like society was like, yes, we trust this. Oh, different, different times. Hi, it's Corinne. I wanted to give a quick shout out to our amazing patrons who are keeping this podcast going. Thank you to our sun-like star, Sharn Llewellyn. Thank you to our red dwarf stars, Sean Reynolds and Musica, Scott Sheldon, Phil C. and Lada Bartova. And thank you to our pre-main sequence stars, Sam Jackson, Mike Caputo, Danny, David Grober, Annie Kraxberger, and Christopher Payne. And you too can support us, hear your name on this podcast, make it to our patron star chart, 
all by supporting us on Patreon. You can find the star chart, Patreon info, and more at our website, palebluepod.com. Hey there, space friends. I don't know if you knew this, but Pale Blue Pod is actually a part of a bigger podcast collective full of other shows hosted by amazingly funny and smart people. That whole collective is called Multitude, and there are plenty of shows for you to choose from, but right now I want to talk to you about Join the Party, which is an actual play podcast with really tangible worlds and fun stories and plots. It's actually the first real play podcast that I ever listened to, and it got me back into the mode of wanting to play Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games. DM Eric and the emphatic players Amanda, Brandon, and Julia will welcome everyone to the table. That's why it's called Join the Party. They didn't just want it to be for longtime TTRPG players. They also wanted to reach folks who have never touched a role-playing game before. If you're not sure where to start, you can hop into their campaign, which is a punny word for their Monster of the Week story set in a weird and wild summer camp. Uh, But they also have two full campaigns, one in a high fantasy epic, uh, and their campaign number two is a modern-day comic book super-powered story. It's really fun. So what are you waiting for? Pull up a chair and join the party. Search for Join the Party in your favorite podcast app, or you can go to jointhepartypod.com. Hey there, it's Corinne. I just wanted to let you know that if you like Pale Blue Pod, then you might love Star Tripper. It's a travelogue podcast about former file clerk Festin Pixis as he searches for the zowiest experiences the galaxy has to offer. In the tradition of classic sci-fi anime with a little bit of Saturday morning cartoons sprinkled in, dive into the action and explore the thriving cosmos with Festin and his crew. You can listen as they zoom through an intergalactic death race, battle a mega beetle live on a popular cooking show, and navigate their way through the eerie dunes of the packaged dimension. Star Tripper has a fully immersive sound design, killer music, and is an instant mood lifter. Popular science even called Star Tripper pure joy in a zippy little sci-fi package. Two complete seasons and two space holiday specials are available to listen now wherever you get your podcasts and on Star Tripper's website, StarTripperHQ.com. Listening to Pale Blue Pod is a great way to learn about astronomy concepts, but it's no secret that we're not here to make you better at math. If that's the type of thing you're after, I'd like to recommend Brilliant. Brilliant is a program online and in app form for lifelong learners that replaces lecture videos with hands-on interactive lessons. You can learn about the complementary angles in a triangle by actually stretching out a triangle on your screen to see the angles change in real time. And you can learn about the center of mass in physics by trying to balance a weighted beam on your digital finger. Those are just a couple of examples. Brilliant has thousands of lessons in math, scientific thinking, and even computer algorithms, and they add new ones every single month. I think that the world really needs more people who can use knowledge and logic to reason through problems, and Brilliant is the best way to practice those skills online interactively. To get started for free, visit brilliant.org slash palebluepod or click on the link in the description. The first 200 of you will get 20% off Brilliant's annual premium subscription. Again, you can join Brilliant for free at brilliant.org slash palebluepod or the link in the description. And come on, have a good time getting smarter. All right, so it's 1965. Vera Rubin, Dr. Vera Rubin at this point, is like, I want to observe through some telescopes. So she uh, 
started doing research at the Carnegie Institute on the rotation speeds of galaxies. In other words, how fast are stars orbiting around the galaxy at different distances from the galactic center? Um, because we have we have theories, we have math, we have like an understanding of physics that tells us how the motion of stars should work. Uh, but mm -hmm. we wanted to see that with our own eyes. We wanted to observe that through the telescopes. So she observed with the McDonald Observatory Telescope in Texas in 1963 and then applied for time on the Palomar Observatory, the Palomar Telescope in California. Um, oh, no. In 1965, she became the first woman to be allowed <gasps> to use the Palomar Observatory. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So... Was this like, were there other women who tried and didn't or it just like was, I'm sure she was one mm -hmm. of the only women in the field or one of the few women. Right. Because, you yeah. know, um, Maria Mitchell was there. There were right, right. other women in the field, yeah. but. Um, 1965. 1965. Oh I know. Um, so the thing about observatories now is that. Actually, a lot of astronomers don't go to visit them. There are telescope operators. A lot of uh, things can be operated remotely, uh, but most astronomers don't end up going to observatories. Some do, but in the past, a lot more did. And so observatories have like dorms. They have rooms mm -hmm. where you can stay. They have cafeterias. They have like little living Whoa. quarters. And because of that, uh, they were like, well, we women have all these stay. men scientists here. We can't let a woman stay. Yeah. So they didn't have bathrooms for women. They didn't oh have dorms God. for women. So like she really had to break a lot of rules or get a lot of special permission right. to go observe at this at this telescope. That is so crazy. And I know that this is true in across industries and across history, but every time I'm reminded that women were just not people, um, I lose my mind. I know. <laughs> Every time I hear someone talk about the Harvard computers, I get really angry. And then I remember that that is the nice name for them. That that's <gasps> the polite name used to refer to that group of women who did a lot of calculations. Uh -huh. The less nice name is Pickering's harem. No! Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this researcher named Pickering who hired a lot of, actually, I don't, they, they were probably paid a little bit, hired a lot of women yeah. to do his research and the calculations right, for him. People called oh them Pickering's God. harem. Yeah. I am so, I am too stunned to speak. The woman was too stunned to speak. <laughs> and that's me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So she broke that ground. She broke, she broke that glass ceiling, observing at Palomar as the first woman. Hate that. Um, she was studying <laughs> the speeds of stars to try and get the rotation curve for a galaxy. Um, so we, our understanding of the motion of things in space comes to us from Newton's and Kepler's laws of motion. And according to those laws of motion, the closer something is to a massive object, if it's orbiting it, the faster it has to move um, in okay. order to avoid being sucked in by the gravity. So uh, we see this in our solar system. The planets that are very close to the sun, like Mercury and Venus, move a lot faster than the planets that are farther away, like Jupiter and Saturn. Mm -hmm. uh, so we would expect stars closer to the center of the galaxy to move very quickly, and we would expect stars farther away, closer to the edge, to move very slowly. And if you were graphing this, the, the speed of stars at different uh, galactic radii, we say, or at different distances from the galactic center, um, it would start off kind of low, it would go up for a little bit, you get a little peak, and then it comes down. 
uh, so that by the time you are at a large galactic radius, by the time you're far from the galactic center, the stars are moving very slowly. Mm -hmm. But what she found instead was a flat rotation curve. Uh, So that curve started kind of low. It went up a little bit and then it plateaued. It never, it never dropped down. Interesting. So the stars on the edge of the galaxy, um, and she, she wasn't observing, I don't know if she was observing the Milky Way, uh, but she was observing lots of other galaxies like Andromeda. Yeah. She saw that the stars closer to their edges were moving a lot faster than they should. And because she was a scientist, she understood that that meant the distribution of matter, the distribution of stuff that has gravity, was not what we expected. Interesting. So she she concluded that there must be something out there with five to ten times the mass of all of the visible stuff. There is a big chunk of matter out there that we can't see, but it's still affecting the motion of these stars with its gravity. And so that was the first like kind of irrefutable evidence of dark matter, even though people had been thinking or talking or like proposing dark matter since the 1930s. Um, I think it was first proposed by a man named Fritz Zwicky. <laughs> Love his name. Yeah. Astronomy might have the best names. All of these names you're always bringing into me are cuckoo. <laughs> I know. It's because people from all over the world can do astronomy. And yeah. there are some fun names. It's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he, he proposed that in 1933. There were several people in the decades between 1933 and the 1970s who came up with other evidence of dark matter. They observed it multiple times, but it was Vera Rubin's work that made the whole community agree like, okay, yeah, dark matter is real and it's everywhere. That's very cool. Yeah. So she did really important work and she did it as a woman not getting much respect from her colleagues Mm -hmm. and actually at many points in her career, like being held back from her full potential. Um, Oh, I did want to tell a a very cute story. When she was in grad school, um, her husband would drive her to her grad school classes and just wait in the car eating his dinner while she was in class. And then he would drive her home after. Oh, my God. That is so sweet. (laughs) They seemed very sweet and very in love. And and I don't want to learn anything that will make that false. (laughs) (laughs) They were both good people. Yes. Yeah, she changed the way that astronomers see the universe. She clued us into the existence of something, dark matter, that we now know was so important to the creation of the Milky Way galaxy in the first place. Like if there hadn't been dark matter, it's likely that the Milky Way galaxy wouldn't have formed, wouldn't have grown as big as it currently is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And yet she got very little acknowledgement. Uh, But she did get, she did get some. So here is a list of the awards that Vera Rubin, Dr. Vera Rubin, won for her work in discovering dark matter. She won the United States National Medal of Science, the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society over in the the UK, uh, the Gruber Cosmology Prize, and the Watson Medal of the National Academy of Sciences. All very prestigious, impressive awards for smart people who do great work. But you know what other big (sighs) award for smart people who do great work that Vera Rubin did not win? An Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, she has an EGOT. Um, She she did EGOT. She did EGOT. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's wrong. No, that that was so funny. (laughs) 
you're right. She did not win an Oscar. <laughs> no, I know what it is. I just don't want to say it. Is it a Nobel I, Prize? It is a Nobel Prize. <sighs> so um, Vera Rubin did this work in the 1970s. She died in 2016. Uh-huh. And even after she died, the Nobel Prize committee was like, nope, no Why? prize for you. Why do you Why? think? Because um, she's pregnant. Because <laughs> she, she was, she was pr- pregnant at she the ripe pregnant. old age of 88. <laughs> oh, no, um, so she did not win a Nobel Prize. Just for some numbers. Because <sighs> I, I think a lot of people, when they hear about the the shockingly low number of women and people of color, like, let's yeah. focus on women right now. The shockingly low number of women who have won Nobel Prizes. I feel like people are like, oh, but, you know, they're rare. And, like, yeah. there aren't a lot of women scientists, blah, blah, blah. No. No. They give out six Nobel Prizes every single year. And multiple people can win one prize in a year. So, like, <gasps> for example, in 2019, the Nobel Prize in physics was split between three different people. James Peebles, who did something about, like, dark energy or whatever, and Michael Meyer and Didier Quelos, who both worked on discovering the first exoplanet. I didn't know that they could split the award like that. Now I'm even mm-hmm. more mad. Yeah, they split the award, they split the cash, and um, they they often do it, but yeah. mostly just for dudes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and so from, oh God, Corinne, you're going to hate this, oh, from no. 1900 to now, the uh, the... Nobel Prizes have been going on since, like, the 1860s. From the year 1900 to this, the year of Our Lady 2022, mm-hmm. how many women do you think were awarded a Nobel Prize? And that's, that's six prizes for From over 100 years. Okay. There, are, there have been 600-plus Nobel Prizes given out. Oh, my God. How many to women? Okay. I want to give, like, a realistic guess because mm-hmm. I know that the, it's so bleak. So I want to say 32. Oh, that's oddly specific, and I really appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, uh, It is 60. (gasps) That's good for me. 60 women. Yeah, it's twice what you thought it was. (laughs) twice what I I almost said 16 because I was being that dramatic. (laughs) Uh, So a tenth. Yeah, less than a tenth because the prizes can be awarded to multiple people. Right. Yeah. There are some Nobel Prizes where women are more common yeah. as recipients. Um, you know, like there's a Nobel Prize in literature. And that's not me saying that it's like, oh, it's easy for women to do stuff in literature. No, yeah. I'm just saying that the people who are in charge of this prize clearly have ideas in their head of what type of person can do what type of work. Completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we were to limit it just to the Nobel Prize in physics. Mm, yeah. In, in the entire history of the Nobel Committee, how many women do you think have won Nobel Prize in physics, Corinne? Sixteen. Four? Moya Four. is holding up. Attention readers. <laughs> I mean, listeners. <laughs> Moya is holding up fingers. Four fingers. The Four? fact that I can do this with one hand. Not That's even my whole really, hand. And not even the whole hand. So those four. four women were Marie Curie in 1903. She's actually I the only her. woman to have won two Nobel Prizes. She won it in physics in 1903 and in chemistry sometime later. Mm-hmm. The second is Maria Mayer in 1963. The next one was Donna Strickland in 2018. So from oh 1963 to 2018, no woman won the Nobel Prize in physics. And I 
I'm putting it out there. I genuinely believe because it's 1963 is like right before Vera Rubin was doing her dark matter work. I I would not be surprised if I was a fly on the wall in that Nobel committee room. Like if they were like, oh, a lot of people are talking about this Dr. Vera Rubin chick, but we just gave the prize to a woman like 10 years ago. We We can't can't do that. Can't do it again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) didn't we just what? Do this? Didn't she win last year? All <laughs> <laughs> women are the same. Um, yeah, so um, then it's Donna Strickland in 2018 and then Andrea Gez in 2020. She won it with multiple other people, all for like confirming the existence of the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Mm-hmm. Four women. Wow, that Four. is so infuriating. And only two of those women are living. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is so evil. Why does everyone hate women so bad? Jeez, get over it. We need, we need, we need a longer podcast episode. Yeah, I know. Than this to so that's that. a different podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. So those are those are the four women who have won Nobel prizes in physics, um, not including Vera Rubin. She never wow. got one. Um, but she has been acknowledged and recognized in a lot of other ways. Um, there is a prize that the American Astronomical Society gives out every year called the Rubin Prize for early career researchers studying dynamical astrophysics, which is a, a broad term that's just like, hey, do you study how things move in space? You can come. Oh, wait, uh, it's actually, hey, do you study <laughs> things that move in space and you haven't had your PhD for more than 10 years? You can win this prize. The prize comes with a thousand U.S. dollars and uh, that's it. A thousand U.S. dollars and you have to give a presentation at a conference. It's $1,000 and extra work. And I don't even know if they'll pay for you to come to the conference. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about this one, but okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so there are a bunch of other awards like that that different schools will give out or different um, like institutions and organizations give out. I think one of the most exciting acknowledgments of Vera Rubin's contribution to our field since the fucking Nobel committee refuses to do it mm-hmm. was in 2020 when the large synoptic survey telescope which was being built in Chile got its name changed to the Vera C Rubin Observatory. Oh. I know. So now she has a, a big old telescope named after her and let's just all have a moment of silence for the fact that clearly some telescopes can get their names changed but apparently not all telescopes huh. can get their names changed. Hashtag huh. JWST. <laughs> the the Vera C. Rubin Observatory, formerly known as the LSST, is expected to have its first light. So it's expected to have its like first observation next year in 2023. We'll see if they actually make it. Most telescopes don't make their first light uh, expected date. Uh, but it's going to be a really cool telescope. It will help us learn about Obviously, dark matter. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that they named it after Vera Rubin. It's going to help us learn about dark energy and how how that behaves and, like, honestly, what's doing it. So this observatory has not witnessed something yet? Correct. It's still being built. It takes a long time to to build these telescopes. And I was was supposed to visit it (sighs) when I was in Chile in 2018. I was supposed to visit this telescope, but they had a huge rainstorm um, the day before I was supposed to visit. And we physically could not drive up the mountain to to get to it. Yeah. Oh, damn. Very sad. But I did get to see it from afar because we went to another observatory on top of another mountain in Chile where you could just like look look across yeah. to see it across the. It was, oh, that's so it was cute! Just like this little bump <laughs> in the distance. Observatories have like the coolest architecture. Yeah, 
Yeah. No disagreement here. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. <laughs> Um, so the, the Vera, the Rubin Observatory will tell us about dark matter and how it behaves and how it's distributed. It will tell us about dark energy and how we can expect that to like change over time. It will help us learn more about how our solar system formed. And the really cool thing about this telescope is that it will take a full like image of the sky pretty much every night. Whoa. Which means we'll be able to see how the night sky changes over time, which will yeah. help us learn about what astronomers call transients. These are like phenomena or objects that are there one moment and then gone the next, like a supernova Whoa. explosion mm-hmm. or um, a gamma ray burst. These things that have like sharp, short bursts of energy. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. So yeah, those are... Unfortunately, all of the flowers, like all of the accolades that Vera Rubin got for her work after decades committing herself to this field, learning new things about the universe, fighting sexism along the way. And then after her husband had to eat dinner in the car. I mean, I don't I don't care about his sacrifices. I could not care less. Um, but this woman, she she mentored other women coming up in the field. She made sure that she wasn't going to be the last, even though she was the first oh. to do many things. I just love her so much. And she died in 2016. That. And uh, I just yeah, I have to say when I was looking at pictures of her, there's this like classic black and white picture that comes up a lot when you google image her and it's like her at a microscope it looks like a microscope i guess it's probably a telescope (laughs) um but she's wearing the coolest like 70s shirt the pattern it's a black and white picture but the pattern of the shirt looks just incredible and i'm like this must have been a really cool person you can just tell (laughs) you can just tell sometimes Uh uh-huh i'll put that picture on our instagram yeah, so I thought that since we were covering the the work and life of someone who was obviously overlooked again and again, that maybe we could spend some time hmm. recounting our <laughs> own accomplishments that have also gone ignored by, yes. by the Nobel Committee. Hell yeah. So I, I woke up today and I fed myself <gasps> and I have yet to hear anything from the Nobel Prize Committee. Yeah, why didn't I get that midnight call from the Nobel yeah. Prize committee saying that I won? Why can't I win a million dollars for doing basic human maintenance on myself? I completely agree with that. I do think that that is incredibly impressive. I went into the office today. You should get two Nobel Prizes. You could be the second woman <laughs> the second to ever get two Nobel Prizes. <laughs> Me and Marie Curie. And guess what? We probably both have... Like Marie Curie, I'm being secretly poisoned by something in this house, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Almost definitely. <laughs> I've seen the paint on these walls. There's got to be lead here. I mean, if there's anything the internet slash WebMD has told me, it's that everything is giving me cancer. Oh, I'm dying all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and where's my prize for that, for being brave? Th- you know my what? My tummy yes. hurts. <laughs> my tummy hurts a lot. And I'm brave every day. <laughs> Corinne, what, what do you think you could do like we we've established that we have both done very impressive things yeah but looking forward what do you think you could do that would go ignored by the nobel committee go ignored wow okay well actually what i did do is a few years ago as you know i wrote a silly humor book that's a self-help parody book it's called how to success a Mm. writer's guide to fame and fortune complete comedy book so silly 
<laughs> I did submit it for a Pulitzer Prize. And the reason that I did that is because it is so easy to submit for a Pulitzer Prize. You just have to mail five copies of the book to Columbia. That's it? I think it might also be, there might be some $20 fee. Like, I don't know. <laughs> but, well, Columbia University? Yeah, because they, apparently they are the keepers, the Weird. gatekeepers. Didn't know that. Um, I wrapped them up in a cute bow and I mailed it off and never heard. So <gasps> I think the jury's still out on if I won the Pulitzer or not. It's going to come through next year. <laughs> they were delayed I think because next of COVID. Year's the year. yeah. yeah. Oh my God, totally. It must have been COVID delays. Mm-hmm. Of course. That, yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> But you can do a lot. I know Moya can do a lot. You mm. tell me what you can do. What I could do? I feel like I could find aliens. Yes, I I really think that. And they would not give me a Nobel Prize. They'd be like, in 2019, we gave, we gave two dudes a Nobel Prize in physics for finding the first exoplanet. But this Moya chick, I just don't think... That she she, she deserves found- <laughs> something for finding the aliens because because it's the, yes. you know the guys did all the work in finding the planets. What is that Amy Adams movie about aliens? Arrival. I'm like you could have an arrival style interaction with aliens and they would be like I don't know I don't know about that. <laughs> I could be the first person to communicate to, yeah, to communicate with aliens to like become an alien to linguist. establish like a universe wide language for aliens. <laughs> They're like no. Mm-mm. Not impressive enough. <laughs> yeah. We, I'm a little busy right we now. We just, in 2020, we just gave a prize to a woman. Like, we can't we can't yeah. do it again. Be like, Moya, Moya, why do I know that name? Did we, I think we gave her an award last year. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, they, I've never once won a Nobel Prize for Exolore. Nothing for my Milky Way book. I, I talked to the galaxy. I channeled the galaxy's <gasps> channeled words. Channeled the galaxy. Oh my I have God, heard you're so right. zero. I've had zero contact from the Nobel Committee. We have to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> None of my research. I don't think any of my research was as groundbreaking as Vera Rubin's. You know, like she discovered dark matter, and I came up with a method to maybe find mountains on exoplanets with telescopes that won't be built for another twenty years. Wait, that sounds really cool. It is very cool, but it's also, like, totally hypothetical because we don't have telescopes that could find it now. We're only one incredible telescope away from you doing it, from you finding a mountain. We would need, and I am not kidding about the name of this telescope, Corinne, just so you know. We would need the overwhelmingly large telescope. No, that's that is what it's that called. That is actually what it's going to be called. Okay, it's hard to understand what is real and what is not in science. <laughs> I know because some things you're like, <laughs> sorry, that's fake. Someone on the internet made that up. Yeah, that is so funny. Okay, well, we're just one overwhelmingly large telescope away <laughs> from the award you deserve mm-hmm. for finding the um the bumpiness of exoplanets. The bumpiness. Mm-hmm. So I I did quick tangent. I did I I did a year on this project. I I worked on this method for a year and only at the end of that year after I had published my paper on it did someone point out that the unit I created to determine how like topographically diverse an exoplanet is was bum penis. Bum penis. That is so <laughs> I funny. I wrote a paper about, about planet bumpinesses. Bumpinesses. Okay, good. We should be insulting penises at every chance we get because women have had it too hard for too long. Mm-hmm. And that's why 
we should get more Nobel Prizes. <laughs> I want Nobel Prize reparations. That's Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And you deserve it. <laughs> Those are all my thoughts between me and Vera Rubin. I was I was briefly considering doing like a, a Kevin Bacon style game where I figure out how far removed I am from Vera Rubin. You're probably not that far. Uh, yeah, honestly, like I bet I could do it in just like one or two yeah. separations. I think I can connect to her because I swear to God, I have a shirt just like this pattern. I'll never get over the pattern of this shirt. That it's counts. really complex. That counts. If you, if <laughs> <laughs> the Kevin Bacon game obviously goes, you have to know someone who knows someone who knows Kevin Bacon, or you just have to have the same article the of clothing. Same ex- if you have the same piece of clothing, then you're practically sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Um, huh. All right. I, I'm getting kind of sweaty in this yeah. greenhouse. It's a little um, warm. Yeah. And I think the tea that we made with all of the herbs from the greenhouse, yes. I think it's done it's steeping. Done. So let's go drink that. Uh, but until until the next episode, listeners, we have something we want you to remember. Never forget, you are space. Pale Blue Pod was created by Moya McTeer and Corinne Caputo with help from the Multitude Productions team. Our theme music is by Evan Johnston and our cover art is by Shay McMullen. Our audio editing is handled by the incomparable Misha Stanton. Stay in touch with us and the universe by following at Pale Blue Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Or check out our website, palebluepod.com. We're a member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like Pale Blue Pod, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. If you want to support Pale Blue Pod financially, join our community over at patreon.com slash palebluepod. For just about $1 per episode, you get a shout out on one of our shows and access to director's commentary for each episode. The very best way, though, to help Pale Blue Pod grow is to share it with your friends. So send this episode, this link, to one person who you think will like it, and we will appreciate you for forever. Thanks for listening to Pale Blue Pod. You'll hear us again next week. Bye. Bye.